Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, please check out the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover new movies out in theaters on VOD. You can find the link to that at the website, Quipster.net. Today, we're going to be continuing our second in our three-part series looking at the Highway to Hell, movies from the 1980s in which there is murder and mayhem out on the open roads somewhere. Last week, we looked at road games from Australia. Going back to the United States for this one, it is 1986's The Hitcher. The Hitcher stars C. Thomas Howell and Rutger Hauer. Jennifer Jason Lee also appears in a smaller role. The director is Robert Harmon, the screenplay credited to Eric Red. It's an R-rated film. It does have strong violence, grisly images, sexual references, and language. The runtime is an hour and 37 minutes. Now, the Mad Hitchhiker film, as this is known, did not start with The Hitcher, but that didn't stop it from leaving an indelible mark on this subgenre. Prior to the release of The Hitcher, many decades before, there had been 1947's The Devil Thumbs a Ride, a similarly titled film from 1953 called The Hitchhiker. And to some extent, there's an exploitation chiller from 1963 called The Sadist. There's even a made-for-TV movie called Night Terror that came out in the late 70s that touches on a similar storyline, although that one had more of a rationale for the killer than The Hitcher ends up delivering. And beyond these films, there have always been decades of stories, some of them urban legends, about the dangers of picking up strangers in one's car in the middle of nowhere. Everyone had heard a story of a psychopath who did all manner of foul deeds once he had access to someone alone in the confines of their vehicle with no easy means of escape. You know, your mother, your father, they always warned you about not picking up hitchhikers for that very reason. Now, the beginnings of the idea for The Hitcher started back in 1983, a few years before the release of the film. Struggling screenwriter Eric Redd, he was relocating and ended up driving cross-country in this drive-away car from New York to Los Angeles, and he was bored. He ended up picking up a hitchhiker while he was traveling en route in Austin, Texas, but then he immediately began to regret his decision. His new passenger was a little on edge. He was unclean, and he kept staring at him unnervingly without doing any talking. And spurred on by those sordid stories in the back of his mind of hitchhiking gone awry, he asked the hitchhiker to get out, and he hoped that he would. Well, he ended up doing so. Completely broke, though, Eric Red stuck it out in Austin. He worked as a cab driver until he could save up enough to complete his trip to Los Angeles, and that's where he began to work on the screenplay in his off hours. He spun off from that feeling of unease and vulnerability from the experience of having this complete stranger in his car, and he wondered what might have happened had that hitchhiker refused to step out. As he began to work on this story idea, he was inspired by the classic song by The Doors called Riders on the Storm. It has very atmospheric qualities and intensity, and he especially keyed in on the lyrics, there's a killer on the road, his brain is squirming like a toad. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die, killer on the road. And that song basically formed the backbone of what he was trying to get after with The Hitcher. Now, once Red completed the screenplay, he began sending out his pitch for this movie to every Hollywood producer that he could get a mailing address for, and that amounted to hundreds of recipients to which he would send a copy of the script if they showed any interest. 
The pitch included the irresistible promise, when you read it, you will not sleep for a week. When the movie is made, the country will not sleep for a week. Now, one interested party was producer Edward S. Feldman, who handed over this pitch to his executive in charge of script development, David Bombick, who asked for a copy of the script. Bombick liked the story idea, but he considered Red's screenplay draft to be a little too gruesome, maybe a lot too gruesome and cruel to make for a commercial hit. And at 190 pages in length, you know, typical scripts were about 120. This was 50% longer than it needed to be. So Bombick, along with producer and uncredited screenwriter Kip Oman, he worked with Red via phone calls, at least initially, and then they worked in person when Red made his way to L.A. in order to get that script into the kind of shape that would allow them to move forward with getting the Hitcher made into a film. And once they finished, they ended up selling off the rights to the script to Feldman and his partner, Charles Meeker, for $150,000, and the green light was on to produce the film. Now, prior to The Hitcher, Robert Harmon, the director, primarily made his living as a photographer, most notably for Playboy magazine. He also worked in videography, and he started gaining a bit of a rep after putting together a short film called China Lake that would end up garnering him an agent. And that short film, which echoes some of the story elements that you could find in The Hitcher, and along with that agent, they managed to secure a meeting with the producers who were looking for someone who would be inexpensive to corral in as director and who knew how to bring a good sense of the visuals in capturing the desolate Mojave Desert to their feature. Harmon, who liked that it was a simple movie with very few actors for his first attempt at a feature, he consented despite his early misgivings about the script. He thought it would be too violent and morbid. He ended up agreeing to do it if he could tone down the already toned-down story to make it more of an exercise in Hitchcockian suspense instead of gore-filled exploitation. For instance, one of the things he changed in the script, in the script there was a scene in which the protagonist finds an eyeball in his hamburger, and that was changed to a little bit more clever one, a more Hitchcockian one, you might say. He's eating from a plate of french fries, and he picks up a fry only to discover that fry is not actually a fry, it's a severed finger. In this way, the film transcends the tropes and the limitations of the slasher genre, much in the same way that a similarly toned and premised The Terminator did a couple of years prior. And there's some similarities, I think, between the two movies. Now, casting the film, they ended up cycling through a list of actors who might be able to have the intensity to play the antagonist named John Ryder, while still maintaining a commercial appeal. The character of John Ryder was described in the script as mostly skin and bones. Eric Red claims he had Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards in his mind as he wrote the part. And top names to play Ryder included a who's who of gaunt character actors like Terrence Stamp, which was Robert Harmon's personal choice, but he ended up not being interested. Sam Shepard, Sam Elliott, he actually was a frontrunner, but he ended up being interested, but he was out of their price range. Harry Dean Stanton was also given consideration. There were a couple of -of out-of-box ideas. Rock stars like David Bowie and Sting were considered, but again, they were out of their price range. So these ideas ended up not working out, so they decided not to really worry about the look of Ryder so much as to try to find someone who could deliver on this unpredictable menace that they were looking for, and they gave actors like Michael Ironside a look. Eventually, they settled on Rutger Hauer. They thought he was a long shot. They thought he was sure to turn down the role immediately because he had publicly vowed not to play any more villains, but... Hauer ended up loving the script. He thought he could bring many of his own ideas into this blank canvas that was John Ryder's psychotic character. So he was on board. He really loved the script, and he thought 
this really could be something he could do a lot with. He even insisted on doing a lot of his own driving, his stunt work. He wanted to really fully inhabit the mind of this man so evil he becomes larger than life. Now, as for the protagonist, Jim Halsey, other actors were given consideration. Those included Emilio Estevez and his brother, Charlie Sheen. Matthew Modine and Tom Cruise were also given looks. But C. Thomas Howell, who had initially expressed no interest in doing a thriller, he agreed because he ended up reading the script, which he said was unlike anything he'd ever read, and he signed on board. Howell brings that required naivete, as well as a palpable sense of dread and growing panic to his performance, particularly when he plays opposite Howell. Howell claims that Rutger Hauer reportedly intimidated and scared him so much throughout the production, whether on the set or off, that he was genuinely terrified when they appeared in scenes together. Hauer, hearing about this many years later, was genuinely surprised to hear about C. Thomas Howell's fear of him. He claims he never really did anything to intentionally instill fear in the younger actor. He thought C. Thomas Howell's nervousness around him was part of his staying in character, and he decided to play along for fun, and that somehow only exacerbated the situation. Jennifer Jason Lee, who was becoming a pretty big star at that point, would end up taking a smaller role than she was accustomed to at this point of her career. She agreed to the role because she wanted to work with Rutger Hauer again because they had a good experience working together in the Paul Verhoeven film Flesh and Blood just a year before. Now, as far as the plot goes, such as it is, see Thomas Howell plays Jim Halsey. Halsey's a young Chicago native who drives a car cross-country to California. He ends up going through Texas on his trip, and he's currently on a road through West Texas. And he's lonely, and he's very tired. But he ends up spying away that he might stay awake in the form of picking up a hitchhiker. He learns his name, at least he claims his name, is John Ryder. And it doesn't take long before Jim becomes unnerved by his new passenger. Ryder claims he's decapitated viciously, the last person to give him a ride, and he's going to do the same to Jim. Now, Jim, terrified, he ends up finding a way to kick Ryder out of his vehicle, but Ryder keeps showing up again and again and killing more victims along the way. And things end up going from horrific to absolutely maddening once the grisly body count ends up rising and Jim becomes implicated in the murders. All signs seem to be pointing toward him. And that's a very Hitchcockian notion that definitely drew in Robert Harmon to that style. The project of the Hitcher gained the early interest of 20th Century Fox, but they thought it more of a limited appeal horror film. They wanted to make the film for a budget much lower than the producers had asked, given the subject matter. Eric Redd, the screenwriter, was commissioned to continue to shop the project around, but ended up not finding any major studios who were desiring to take the chance with this film that runs so heavily on violence. There were a couple of studios that said that they might be interested if they could replace the untested Robert Harmon as director, but the producers were sticking to their man. They thought he had the style to bring this vision to life. They eventually found an inroad with Silver Screen Partners, who produced films for HBO. The brass of Silver Screen Partners had some major reservations, though, regarding the brutality of the film, especially a specific scene in which a character meets a particularly grisly death. If you see this film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They actually argued against putting the death in the film altogether, or if it had to be in there, that there should be a way to soften it up. But the makers of the film said that it would alter the trajectory of the movie too much to temper the misdeed. Ultimately, Robert Harmon, who had those early misgivings, convinced them that he actually never planned to shoot this heinous act of extreme violence to appear on the screen. The story would proceed without it ever being shown. And so that relaxed some of the early qualms. 
Now, after all of the compromises and all of this finagling involved in order to tone the film down enough to be palatable to general audiences, it still proved to be too violent for many critics and some audiences. Originally, The Hitcher was a disappointment in its theatrical release back in 1986. It would meet with mixed to some very discouraging negative reviews. Roger Ebert, in particular, gave it one of his rare ratings of zero stars. He cited The Hitcher as diseased, corrupt, and reprehensible. Roger's partner on At The Movies would also deliver a rare zero stars rating. Gene Siskel described the experience of watching The Hitcher as nauseating. With these kinds of scathing reviews, The Hitcher would have a disappointing box office take of under $6 million. That was almost exactly what the production budget had been. Nevertheless, once it hit cable and home video, it eventually found its audience. The Hitcher has gone on since then to become something of a cult film for thriller junkies and even horror fans. And over time, the film has gone on to be considered actually a good and effective chiller, even among those who may have initially dismissed it as violent trash back in the day. And that's perhaps more of a sign of the changing nature of what is acceptable violence in American cinema over the years than anything else. It definitely does not seem beyond the pale considering what is made today in terms of violent thrillers. Now, the reason why it has found the audience, I think, is clear if you watch it today. It does grab you with sordid developments, and it never relents until this explosive and bloody finale. It doesn't really make a great deal of sense. It's never really clear just who John Ryder is or why he's chosen to make Jim Halsey's life a literal living hell, but trying to come up with your own theories is actually part of the fun of watching The Hitcher. In many ways, it's, it is a derivative film. There are other great deadly road game films of Cat and Mouse. Steven Spielberg's Duel comes to mind as the primary goal. But in this telling, the stalker is actually riding along in the car with the victim much of the way. The Hitcher also was an influential film. Other films came out that really kind of stole the vibe. One notable one is the 2003 hit called High Tension. And in 2004, there was another film called Highwaymen. That very much echoed what The Hitcher had to deliver. And its popularity would also help it garner a straight-to-video sequel in 2003 called The Hitcher 2, I've Been Waiting, which also featured C. Thomas Howell reprising his role as Jim Halsey. Eric Redd, who gets a screenwriting credit because he felt it essentially remade large elements of his original film. He insisted on getting screenwriting credit, even though he didn't write a word of what happens there. But he ends up disavowing the sequel. He thinks it is a terrible movie. And there was a less effective remake of The Hitcher that came out in 2007 with Sean Bean as John Ryder. However, audiences, even those who thoroughly enjoyed the original film, did not care to see any of these films that were just a rehash of the formula, especially without the mesmerizingly effective performance of Rutger Hauer at his most hypnotically diabolical. Now, Eric Red's script is appropriately minimal. It includes a few shock moments that actually jolt you into attention. First-timer Robert Harmon's direction is stylish and moody and claustrophobic in the best of ways, especially when Rutger Hauer and C. Thomas Howell are together. And in a way, it's a complete subversion of Western tropes. You have the good guy here completely ineffective to thwart the bad guy, the men of law completely inept and vulnerable against him, and a protagonist unable to save the damsel in distress in the end. In essence, you cannot destroy evil while remaining purely good. That's what the Hitcher has to say, unlike the great westerns. Ryder taunts Halsey to stop him throughout, forcing him to be a killer if he wants to stop him as a killer. 
And as that twisted form of Western on wheels, the desolate desert atmosphere, as seen through future Oscar winner John Seale's stark cinematography, it's particularly effective. I mean, who can you turn to when there's no one around? And where does one hide when there's nothing to hide behind in the great desert? And what's more than that, questions abound, such as the seeming omniscience of Ryder. Is he a real-life killer? Is he Halsey's alter ego? Is Jim actually dead and Ryder there to direct him out of purgatory? The pennies on the eyes moment would certainly lay credence to this reading of the film. Or is all of this merely the nightmarish embodiment of Jim Halsey's boredom-induced furtive imagination? Those are all questions to ponder, and a lot of people have a lot of interesting theories as to what this film is all about. And by the end, you may have your own theories that have nothing to do with any of these things, but you may come to realize that the actual theme of this film is about the importance of confronting what you fear head-on. You can't simply do nothing. You can't run from it, because that fear is still going to be there. It's always with you until you actually take it head-on and vanquish it. You can see that in the intended originally scripted ending. That's more in line with this. Originally in the script, one character in this film decides to murder the other while he's in a helpless state. The studio had a lot of issues with that, so that ending ended up getting revised so that the killer has an appreciable reason for his action. But really, that was a compromise that ran against the grain of this film. It really wanted to show that sometimes you have to be a killer to stop a killer. The Hitcher's genre rests somewhere on the borderline between psychological thriller and slasher horror. It doesn't really explain enough for us to come away with a solid knowledge of what it's striving to achieve other than sheer terror. I mean, logic is not something that the makers of this nihilistic film strive for, except to give the semblance of a way out for Jim, who becomes less sure that the world is working according to the rules as he goes along. The more Jim tries to escape to profess his innocence, the more others are going to suffer. It's really quite the conundrum of survival. Avoiding certain death only endangers the lives of countless others around him. And the more mythical and perhaps even outlandishly absurd the sadomasochistic and homoerotic relationship becomes between a seemingly primal supernatural predator and his rattled and tormented prey, the more the palpable terror becomes actually believable. Because we never get to a moment in this film when we feel absolutely safe and secure. So if you can tune in to the Hitcher's warped, existential frequency, this movie is going to effectively get under your skin to deliver a very taut and suspenseful vehicle that will not let you out even when the ride stops. And that's why I'm going to give The Hitcher three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think this is a good and effective film and definitely worth going out of your way to see if you haven't done so already, as long as you can stomach the very heavy violence and, like I said, that nihilistic, sometimes amoral attitude that it has. It does wrestle with these things in a way that I think is thoughtful. And it's one of those movies, as I mentioned, it's not for everyone. And I have to admit, this is a movie that kind of grew on me. I think when I first saw it, I was pretty shocked by it, and I didn't know what to make of it. Over time, and this is probably this maybe seventh or eighth time that I've seen it, I've come to really appreciate the things that it does well. And like I mentioned, a lot of this violence that was so shocking back in the day in the mid-1980s has really been taken to an extreme by so many. It still has shock value, but it definitely is tempered somewhat by the fact that there are so many more violent films today that are probably even more amoral than this one, especially in the realm of horror. So three and a half stars out of four 
is what I give The Hitcher. If you have your own thoughts on The Hitcher, I do encourage you to reach out to me. I love talking about this film. It's one of those movies that I love to pick apart because it gives you enough to be interested, but not necessarily a lot of expository information to fill in all of the blanks. You really have to kind of come to your own conclusions as to what the movie is all about and how John Ryder actually is able to operate the way he does. And that's part of the fun of The Hitcher. You can find my contact information if you have your own thoughts by going to my website, quipster.net. That's Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, it's not quite a road movie, but it does take place with kind of a nomadic group of vampires that are out on the road for a good part of this movie. It is a film that's also written by Eric Redd, the same screenwriter as The Hitcher. And it's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, film featuring vampires. It is called Near Dark. It's a film from 1987. It's the same year that The Lost Boys came out, so quite a year for Vampire Cinema. And that will be on the very next episode. So check that out for next week. Catherine Brigolo directs a, a much-overlooked movie and really good thrills and action to that one as well. Near Dark from 1987 on next week's episode. Until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Music